In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that all will be, that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, it's astounding to read that story once again and be reminded of your plan that you conceived of before the creation of the world. A plan that is so um, unbelievable that nobody was prepared for it. A plan that that involved actually sending your own son into this world to become a man, to rescue us from our sins so that we could become children of God. What a marvelous, amazing, wondrous plan. And God, we're so thankful that you have brought each of us this morning who have put our faith in Jesus, you've brought us into your family, through your son, Jesus. Lord, as we think about this precious baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago, Lord, we believe with all of our hearts that his life has infinite significance for us even here today and really forever, for all time. Lord, as we together consider once again this story that for many of us, is a story we've heard countless times. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to see these things with the sense of awe and wonder that they are worthy of. So Lord, bless us now in your word. Speak to us. Stir our hearts. We commit this time of study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this year is the year that my children have definitively learned that Santa Claus 
does not exist. Like, no, not at all. It's, it's just all a hoax. The guy is not real. Now, let me just say, don't judge us, bro. Like, I know some of you are like, wait, hold on, you're a pastor. Like, why didn't you destroy that lie from the beginning? How did this thing happen? Uh, and then others of you are like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You destroyed the magic of Christmas. What kind of terrible parent are you? Um, I don't have time to unpack all that probably should be unpacked with that. I'm sure some of you will send me emails this week. But let me just say this. The cool thing about that is that if you're the type who's like, kids need to think about Santa, they need to know about Santa because they need to think about uh, mystery and things like that, and, and it's good for them to develop their imagination, let me just tell you something. The true story of Christmas and the events that happen there are infinitely more magical, if you'll use that word, or wondrous, which is a word I would like to use, than the story of Santa Claus could ever be. I mean, the the true meaning of Christmas, it points back to a moment in human history 2,000 years ago that is more mind-boggling than a fat elderly man in a red costume flying around the entire world in one night with enough presents in a single sleigh for every children who's on the nice list, and more mind-boggling than how that one man can have enough room in his stomach for all of the cookies and milk that are put out in every single home across the planet. Christmas, as we really understand it, as Christians understand it, is full of wonder and majesty and mystery. And this morning, I want us together to, with fresh eyes, hopefully, consider as a church body, as the family of God, the wonder of Christmas. And so I want us to think about what is it about Christmas that really is so awesome, that really is so mind-boggling that it should leave us all struck with a sense of wonder. I want to invite you to turn, you're probably still in Luke 2, but turn out of Luke to the right in your New Testament and make your way over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you are using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, we're going to be on page 924, so you can turn there. And I I know this isn't a traditional Christmas text, and that's why we had Robert read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 for us. But here in Colossians chapter 1, as we look at this passage together, there's two major things that I want to point out for us that I really do believe help us to get to the heart of the Christmas story, and, and that I truly believe will help us to leave church this morning and hopefully go into Christmas over the next day or two with a sense of wonder in our hearts about what God has done for us. So there's really, again, just two big thoughts that I'm going to want to emphasize for us out of Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20, and here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The first big idea that I want us to think about this morning from Colossians 1, 15-20, as it relates to Christmas, is this. The first reason, if you will, for wonder at Christmas time is this. That at Christmas, God revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That at Christmas, God revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Among other things, Christmas is about God, Almighty God, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, revealing Himself to His creation. Now, prior to that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, God had revealed Himself in limited ways to His people, the Jews. And that limited ways is really significant. God had revealed Himself in limited ways to the Jews up to that point. For instance, you'll remember that He led the children of Israel through the wilderness by a cloud during the day and then a pillar of fire at night which showed them His personal care and His guidance for His people. He fed them with manna from heaven which taught His people about His provision for their needs. God had smashed Israel's enemies into pieces before their eyes time and time again. And He had performed mighty signs and wonders and miracles to show His people something of His great power. God had even at times struck down people who violated His laws to teach them something of His holiness and His justice. Of course, eventually, the Jews even had God's Word, His written Word, which taught them so many other things about the God that they worshipped and the God that they followed. But church, listen, all of these things, plus a million other things, only provided a shadowy glimpse into the essence and the being of the God who Israel worshipped. And therefore, the Jews always only had a limited understanding of who God is. In that sense, they were sort of like the characters in The Wizard of Oz, right? The characters, Dorothy and her friends, they had heard the stories about the wizard. Eventually, they even heard his voice, and yet he was always behind the curtain. They had a limited understanding of who he was. John, the gospel writer, states it this way. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's why here in verse 15 of our text, Paul calls him the invisible God. See, God the Father has never been seen by a human being tainted with sin and had them live to tell the story about it. God has been largely hidden from His creation. But here's the connection to Christmas. All of that changed 2,000 years ago. When God revealed Himself more fully to His Creation. Rather than being hidden from them, He would dwell among them. Jesus Christ, that precious baby in the manger that we're thinking about at Christmas time, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, all that is to say that Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was a historical man. He was a person who walked among us. In Him, the nature and being of God has been perfectly revealed. In Jesus of Nazareth, listen, the invisible has been made visible. In fact, after John in his gospel writes, no one has ever seen God, he goes on to write this, the only God who is at the Father's side, this is a reference to Jesus, has made Him known. That's John 1.18. So, so think about what he's saying. He's saying, listen, nobody's ever seen God. He says, but the only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. In other words, when we look at Jesus' church, we are looking at God. This is the revelation of God to the world. It's as if God stepped out from behind the curtain. It's as if God came and made Himself known to us. But unlike the experience of Dorothy and her friends when the Wizard of Oz came out from behind the curtain and left them disappointed, when Jesus stepped out from behind the curtain, so to speak, and revealed who God is to us, it didn't leave us disappointed. It leaves us in wonder because He's so amazing. Jesus was not just a man who came and taught us new information about God. Sure, Jesus revealed things. He shared things about God. But He was more than that. Jesus was and is and ever will be God clothed in humanity. And friends, this is the clear teaching of the New Testament. And we see several indicators of this here in our text in Colossians chapter 1. I want to unpack a little bit of that for you before we move on to the second big idea here this morning. I want you to notice what the rest of verse 15 says. Paul here calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now, I was just going to move on to some of the other things that he says in this text that make it really, really clear that Jesus is God. But I thought some of you are going to sit there and go, hold on, but what about this firstborn over all creation stuff? Doesn't that seem to actually send us in the wrong direction? So I didn't want to do preacher tricks and just like do a Jedi mind trick and move on. I want us to deal with this idea. Because actually what we find is when you understand what firstborn overall creation actually means, it's just one more proof that Jesus is divine. Again, at first sight, this statement might seem like it's sending us in the wrong direction. I mean, how does this title, firstborn of all creation, help us to see that Jesus is God in the flesh? That's a fair question. Well, this phrase firstborn, has caused some people to conclude that Jesus is a created being, albeit he's the first created being of God. In fact, if you have a Jehovah's Witness that shows up at your door, which is very likely this time of the year, that's exactly what they are going to tell you about Jesus. That God created Jesus first, and then through Jesus created everything else. Now certainly firstborn can mean that, mean first to be born, and oftentimes in the Bible it does mean that. But you need to know this morning that that is not the only thing that it can mean. In fact, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called firstborn. Even though, if you know your world history, Israel was not the first nation on earth. Additionally, in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, the psalmist there calls the future Messiah the firstborn of the kings of the earth even though he clearly wasn't before, born before any other king. 
So firstborn there means something other than the first to ever be born. Well, what does it mean, we might ask? What, what does firstborn actually mean there if it's not the first to be born? Well, the rest of Psalm 89.27 tells us the answer. Here's what that verse says. And I will make him, the Messiah, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn in this usage then has nothing to do with the order in which you were born. It has everything to do with your rank or the position that you occupy. I mean, think about it. Obviously, Jesus of Nazareth was not the first human ever born. So that's not what Paul's trying to get at when he says that he's the firstborn over all creation. He's speaking of Jesus's rank, his position that Jesus is preeminent, supreme over all of creation. And we know this to be the case because as you look at verses 16 and 17, Paul continues to develop this idea. In these verses, we see that everything that is created was created by or in Jesus Christ. And friends, listen, what this means is that the baby in the manger is the one who is responsible for everything that has ever come into existence. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an outlandish claim to make? That a child, a helpless child lying in a manger 2,000 years ago is the one that is responsible for creating everything. Jesus, we're told here in these verses, created everything. For by Him, verse 16, all things were created. And not just the earthly stuff, things in heaven and on earth. Not just the things that we see, visible and invisible things, were created by Jesus, created through Jesus, and created for Jesus. He's the point of all of this. So Jesus is the creator of everything. Therefore, if all created stuff came about through Jesus, then Jesus himself is not created. In fact, in John 1.3, the same point is made. Speaking of Jesus, he writes, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In other words, you can create two categories. You can have a category that says created stuff. Put everything in the universe in that category, created stuff. And then you have Jesus over here as the one who's responsible for all the created stuff. Jesus was not created and Jesus is the creator. Verse 17 builds on this further. It tells us that Jesus existed before everything else. He's before all things. I just want you to stop this morning again and just think about what that's saying. It's saying that before there was ever oxygen or hydrogen, before there were ever molecules, before there were ever atoms, before there was even a universe to contain all of those things, Jesus of Nazareth was there. It's amazing. He is the one who created everything. He is, in fact, as he tells us, In the Gospel of John, he is the great I am who has always been and will always be. Not only did he create it all, verse 17 goes further. He holds it all together. Jesus is like 
Jesus is to creation what the sun is to our solar system. Everything else revolves around Jesus. Everything else finds its meaning and its purpose and its direction and its sustenance in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate reason that right now as we're sitting here, the planets are still orbiting. Jesus is the ultimate reason why the sun is still blazing. Jesus is the ultimate reason that rain pours out on the earth, that plants and flowers grow, that your heart is beating in your chest right now with no batteries. He's the reason that babies are being knit together in mother's wombs. Friends, listen, all of this, plus anything else that you can think of in all of creation is right now in this moment being sustained by the unimaginable power and authority of Jesus Christ. Guys, are are we starting to sense the gravity of what Paul is saying about our Lord Jesus this morning? And just to make sure that we're not missing it, look at what he says in verse 19. Jesus is in verse 19, according to verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or to say it the way he says it in chapter 2, for in him, this is verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, are you starting to sense the gravity of what the New Testament teaches us about the identity of that little child in the manger 2,000 years ago. Paul's understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth is goes a lot further than what our Muslim friends might say about him when they would say Jesus is a great prophet. That's like saying LeBron James is a great shooter. Sure, LeBron James is a great shooter along with a million other wonderful things that LeBron James does in basketball, namely being a great passer, a great scorer, a great leader, a great rebounder, a great defender, and on and on and on and on. Now all the Kobe fans are like, I'm not going to say that about LeBron, but it's true. It's true. He's an amazing basketball player. Yes, Jesus is a great prophet. Yes, Jesus taught us amazing things about God that are all true, but it's more than that. Jesus is not just a teacher about God. Jesus is God in human flesh who came to this earth to dwell among us, to make God known to us so that we can experience Him and know Him fully. It's who He is. Deity in diapers, as it's been said. The first thing that this passage shows us that should cause us to have a great sense of wonder this Christmas is that God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The second reason for wonder at Christmas is this. God reconciled us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. So first, he revealed himself to us. Second, he reconciled us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, it is impossible for us to look at the baby in the manger without at the same time seeing the man upon the cross. The whole reason for Bethlehem was to make a way For Calvary, Jesus, that precious baby, 
was a baby born to die. We see this in verse 20, Colossians 1, verse 20. Through Him, God reconciled to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What we've learned so far this morning is that through His birth at Christmas, Jesus revealed God to us. Meaning that God desires to be known by us. And He desires that we know Him, that we enjoy Him, that we have fellowship with Him. But listen, church, we can never be reminded of this too many times. Despite God desiring those things for us, we all have a massive obstacle that is keeping us from experiencing fellowship with God. You and me and every other person who's ever walked this earth is estranged from God. We have been separated from God with no chance of being brought back into fellowship with Him because of the fall. Sometimes we think of the fall as almost like when you have a small child and you tell them, don't play with that, and they go play with it. And it seems kind of like just this innocent, well, well, yeah, they did the wrong thing, but get over it. It's just a little thing that they did wrong. We look at the situation in the garden there, and we go, they just ate of a fruit. Like, what's, what's the big deal? And we downplay this. Friends, we need to understand that that was a big deal. In fact, that was the biggest deal. The fall of our first parents set a trajectory for all of creation and for every person who's ever walked this planet to be alienated from God because what Adam and Eve actually did in the garden when they chose to eat of that fruit is they turned away from God. They turned away from Him as Father, Provider, Protector, the one who they would follow. And when they turned away from God, they alienated themselves from Him. So that rather being in fellowship with God, from that moment forward, they were brought under God's judgment. And not only them, but the whole creation as well. Do you remember when God brought judgment in Genesis chapter 3 on Adam and Eve and the serpent? When God judged Adam, even the creation was cursed at that point. Right? All of the the ground would be cursed and All the produce would be brought forth in hardship now. So the ground itself was cursed. Sometimes when I eat certain vegetables, I I feel like I can taste the curse still. Do you know what I'm saying? For me, it's peas. I don't know how you feel about peas, but I cannot eat peas to this day. How many of you guys like peas? Like, you like peas by a show of hands. See, that's evidence of the fall right there. All of you guys. You know how when you're a kid, you don't like certain vegetables or certain foods and your parents promise you, when you grow up, you're going to like this stuff. That proved true for most vegetables for me, but peas, I've just never been there. And I think it's because when I was a little kid, my mom and my older brother, um, they bet me to try, t- to try peas one night when we were having dinner. And all they did is, is my mom took a spoon and put two little peas on it. And she said, we'll give you 50 cents if you eat these peas. Now, when you're like six, 50 cents, and this is, you know, like 1990, 50 cents is a lot of money. Okay, I don't know what that is now. 
Um, I wouldn't do anything for 50 cents. But back then I was like, yes, that can go in the piggy bank and I can get some baseball cards. I went for it. The peas barely even touched my tongue when my gag reflex kicked in. And I just, I threw up and I didn't even eat dinner that night. And I still, to this day, I just, if I see peas, I just almost start sensing the gag reflex. It's weird how our memory can keep those things lodged in there. That was a big sidetrack just to say the ground was cursed. All of creation was cursed. The world that you and I are living in right now is broken. It is in need of fixing and repair. In fact, Romans 8 puts it this way, verses 19 through 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So because of sin, church, everything has been affected in a negative way. And just like Adam and Eve and even the earth itself were cursed and judged because of sin, you and I this morning outside of Christ are continuing in God's judgment because of your sins. All of us have sinned, the Bible tells us. And therefore, all of us are alienated just like Adam and Eve and creation from our God. So even though God broke into creation in the person of Jesus Christ, you and I have a massive obstacle that prevents us from seeing Him and experiencing Him the way we ought to. It's sort of like how every new morning the sun breaks through the darkness and shines on the earth and gives light to the earth. And yet if you were a blind person, that morning breakthrough that happens when the sun rises would have no benefit for you. It wouldn't help you to see anything. There's an obstacle there, your blindness. That's the position that the scriptures teach us that we're in. Yes, God broke through into creation 2,000 years ago, revealing himself definitively in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet we have blinders on, so to speak. We have an obstacle that prevents us from experiencing him. And that obstacle is sin. But God, God did something about that. God provided a remedy for us. And now in Colossians 1.20, Paul explains that God has reconciled all things to himself by making peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. Let me say it again. Christmas points us beyond a baby in a manger to a man upon a cross. The reason for Bethlehem was to make way for Calvary. And at the cross, friends, Jesus of Nazareth paid the penalty for sin. And at the cross, he not only provided a way for human beings to have the relationship with God fixed, he also fixed the relationship between the created world and God. So this morning, before we close, the second major thought that you and I should leave with, that you and I should be reflecting on, that you and I should be celebrating this Christmas is that God provided reconciliation to the world that he created. You and I can be reconciled to God. You and I can be in a right relationship with our heavenly father. And what this means, if God has done all of these things, is that the God in heaven who created this universe is a God who deeply cares about you. 
is a God who loves you unimaginably. And I know for some of us that have entered this church this morning, that's the rub for you with the storyline of the gospel. Everybody has issues when they hear the good news of the gospel that, that, that comes up for them. And they go, I, I, I reject this for this reason. But for some of us this morning, the issue for you is you struggle to believe that God actually loves you. That God would actually want a relationship with you. Perhaps you've looked at the course of your life. You've looked at things that have happened to you. Bad things that have happened to you. And sure, some of them you can say, well, I was responsible for that. But maybe there's other things that have happened to you. Maybe you were abandoned by a parent when you were really young. Maybe your parents split up when you were a kid. Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe something really, really terrible happened to you and it was outside of your control. And you hear of a God who loves you and cares about you and you go, I can't buy that. If God loved me, then how or why? Friends, the message of Christmas is that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And the reason that bad things are happening in this world right now is because sin has set things wrong, but there's a Savior who is setting things right. And His name is Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on that cross, He began at that moment setting things right. And right now we live in an age of grace. We live in an age where this gospel goes forth. We live in an age where people who are sinful and alienated from God can be forgiven and restored to God. And there is an age to come that all of us are living in. And it's what Advent points to. An age to come where Jesus returns again and he finishes the mission. And he sets everything right forever. He remakes all of creation. And what was lost in Eden is restored in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells forever. And it's not a coincidence, friends, that every single tear is wiped away and that there is no more sorrow. There is no more sadness. God has provided reconciliation to the world that we live in. That baby in the manger grew up to be the man upon the cross so that your sins could be paid for. Then he was raised from the grave three days later and he is alive right now and he's extending his hand in friendship to you at this very moment, offering you peace, offering you fellowship. You know, Tuesday, all of us are going to receive some gifts except Uva and Choi because they already had Christmas last night for some reason. Not to put you on blast, Uva, but there you go. But Tuesday, all of us are going to receive gifts. Some of us are going to receive really awesome gifts, things that you really want. I know I've got some cool stuff coming because me and my wife, I don't know if this is weird or not, but we just tell each other what we want. We're like so over the surprise game. Like, what do you want, babe? Let's just take all the surprise out of it, but let's make each other really happy. Just tell me what you want and we go and get it. So I know I'm getting some cool stuff. Some of you are going to get some really cool gifts and praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing. Because Christmas has always been about gift giving. That first Christmas was about giving a gift. Of course, it was about God giving the greatest gift to us, his own son, John 3.16, a verse most of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
We need to be reminded, particularly in our culture, that no matter what other gifts you get this Christmas, nothing compares to the indescribable gift that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. He is truly the only gift that keeps on giving. And so family, for all of us this morning who are Christians, for all of us who have already received God's great gift of a Savior, we've received God's pardon and we've received an invitation back into His family, our marching orders this Christmas is that in the midst of the holiday, in the midst of great meals with family and friends perhaps, and surprising people with great gifts, let us once again rehearse this great story of the greatest gift ever given so that our hearts are stirred with a sense of awe and wonder, adoration, and love for our Savior. And for any here this morning who have never received God's great gift for you, let me plead with you. Receive it here today. Because no matter what else you get, or no matter what else you accomplish in life, Nothing besides Jesus will give you what you truly need. I heard the other day, and this was so sad, that depression actually escalates during Christmas time. And that's tragic to hear that. Isn't this supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year? And yet greater and greater numbers of people are depressed at Christmas than any other time of the year. Wonder why that is. Well, I think part of it could be this. The commercialized version of Christmas cannot deliver on the promises of the season. But friends, listen, the Christ of Christmas can. And he will. And he will deliver on all of his promises. And in Jesus, where the fullness of deity is present, that's where you and I can experience fullness. It's not a coincidence that Jesus said that in him we can have life in abundance. And so again, if you've never received this greatest of all gifts that God has given to us in his son Jesus, my encouragement to you this morning would be turn to him in faith. Give to him the position in your life that he is worthy of. The place of God. The place of Savior. As my pastor used to say, We don't need presents. What we need at this time of the year is His presence. Amen? Let's pray together.